because we are going to read the scripture. Today's scripture reading comes from Philippians chapter 1. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident in this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, everyone, welcome back to our winter series that we're calling a fellowship of burning hearts. We're about middle of the way through at this point. And this whole series is geared to lead up, the run up to the 24-7 prayer room, which, as Katie mentioned a moment ago, starts in two and a half weeks, you guys. Two and a half weeks until the prayer room. Thank you, Natalie. <laughs> You just need one whoop. That's all. I mean, that's not, I'm not asking for much, people. Um, and the prayer room, if you know, is just like our heartbeat, our ethos. Right now, our team is curating the space with art and stories and resources that are attended, intended to be like distraction-free and to really stir your heart and your affection for Jesus and to also just encourage you to be in his presence. And uh, like we mentioned a moment ago, the website is now live. The calendar is live on our website, which means you can go there at any time and register your time to pray. So I wanted to just show you really quickly how easy it is for you to register for the prayer room. So here you go. If you're on our homepage, you can see um, the banner here. You can listen to a podcast in case you missed it. And then at the very top, there's that yellow band. And if you click on that yellow band, it brings you straight to the prayer room uh, calendar. And as you can see, there's already a bunch of people who discovered it on our website and started booking time in the prayer room, which is awesome. Actually, I remember last year, I had the goal of doing 100, uh, 100 hours in the prayer room, and uh, I wasn't able to do it because there were so many of you who kind of uh, booked all of your time in the prayer room, which I think is really cool. But I have the goal again this year that I want to get back up to 100 hours. So I might need to bum in on some of your guys' times, if that's okay with you. Um, but anyways, there you go. That's how you do it. If you click on the hour that you want to pray, say if you wanted to pray 10 p.m. on, uh, on the 14th, um, then it brings up this little box. You put your name and your email. Uh, if you want to book the room exclusively, meaning if you just want to be in there by yourself and not have anyone else in there with you, you can do that. Um, you can also um, change the duration. Like if you wanted to pray for two hours instead of one, you can do that. Um, there's also repeat options, so if you want to do the same hour every day or every week or every month or whatever, you can also do that. Then you hit book, and it's done. You get a calendar invite, it goes onto your Gmail or whatever you use, and then also it'll send you a reminder a day before you're supposed to go and pray. So it's very, very simple. We want to make it simple for everyone uh, so that we can really all together join in with this movement of unceasing prayer around the world. There's actually 70 different countries and hundreds of different churches and thousands of people who are joining this call to pray around the clock for spiritual awakening. And we're just part of that movement, which is really, really awesome. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, I was, um, I, was, I was telling my family, it was Sabbath dinner, so we had eaten out in downtown Bend, and then we started driving home, and I was telling my kids, uh, Isabel and Judah, that we're going to be doing the prayer room again this year. And my son Judah, who's six, was like, no way. And he's like, 
can we go do it right now? Can we go to the prayer room right now? And it was like 7.30 or whatever, and I have this thing in my brain where I'm like, any time Judah wants to go to the prayer room, I'm saying yes to that. Like some parents are like over-eager on the sidelines of the kids' soccer games. This is my thing. My thing is anytime Judah wants to go to the prayer room, I'm saying yes to that. And so there have been so many different times where we've canceled what we're doing or stopping what we're doing to go to the prayer room because Judah requests it. And so this, this time, it was so special. A couple Friday nights ago, and the four of us got together, huddled up in the prayer room, and he started praying again, as he often does, for you guys that you would encounter God in the prayer room, which I just think is so awesome and special. My little six-year-old boy, maybe he'll one day be a part of leading this forward after we're all gone, which is beautiful. So anyways, if my son can do it, so can we. So, um, so anyways, uh, to lead into this conversation, we've been looking at the, you know, Scripture's filled with all kinds of calls to pray, but this particular year, we're looking at the letters of Paul. And specifically the prayers that Paul prays over the first century churches. And as we explore together, I, I'm just finding that I, th- I really think that the secret to the power of the ministry of the early church, the ministry of Paul, the ministry of those early churches, and the ministry of Jesus even itself, was the power of that was a radical commitment to a lifestyle of unceasing prayer. And um, you've heard me talk like this before, and I, I really am confident that this is the case. And here's how we can be super confident. The letters of Paul give us, I think, probably the best insight into the early life of the church, the first couple of decades of the church. We learn about what they thought, what they did, what their issues were, what their problems were, all of that. And at every turn, it would seem, when Paul is writing to the church, he says, I'm praying for that, I'm praying for that, I'm praying for that all over the scripture, I challenge you to look through the letters of Paul and notice how many times Paul says, I'm praying for you guys in that area. And and, uh, case in point is our text today, Philippians chapter one. After like a really brief two sentence greeting, he says, in all of my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. There you go. And you might be thinking to yourself, wait a second, that seems oddly familiar. Isn't that what we read last week? And actually, it's not. That was Ephesians chapter 1. And Paul says something very, very similar to the church at Ephesus. He says something very similar to the church at Colossae and the church at Thessalonica and the church at Rome and the church at Corinth and his protege Timothy and his other protege Titus. He says this over and over and over again in his letters. So other than the like glory and fame of the Lord Jesus Christ, unceasing prayer, I'm convinced, has got to be the most repeated theme in Paul's writings. He's saying always, I'm always praying for you guys. Which, as I was prepping for this message, it made me think of a little logic puzzle, okay? So go with me on this for a moment. If Paul is spending all of this time praying for all of these individual churches and his protégés all around the Roman world, and he's, again, always praying for these people, then there's really only a couple of options. Either Paul is crazy, or he enjoys wasting his own time, Or he's convinced 
that God, going to God in prayer is powerful and effective. And there's some powerful element to seeking God in prayer. Now let me tell you, there's a lot we know about Paul. He traveled thousands of miles all over the known world, started at least a dozen churches in under 20 years. This guy did not like wasting time. So that one's out. Maybe he's a little bit crazy, you might say, based on his lifestyle, that he is. But if you look at the results of this man's ministry, I think it's fair to say that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Which that, by the way, is a quote from James, who is another apostle who was saying the exact same things as Paul was in the first couple of decades of the church, which also happened to be the most explosive time in the history of the church. And the success of the early church, I think, was carried along by this devotion to seeking God in prayer around the clock. So I think this gives me a lot of hope. It should give us a lot of hope because I'm not sure if you're aware of this or not, but there are a lot of people, statisticians and church growth experts and stuff like that in the Western world who are analyzing the decline of the American church. It's just about any magazine article that you read on Christianity, lots of different you know, blogs and, and uh, even uh, latest like research data goes to show that you know, millions fewer people are attending church in America now than in the uh, 20th century. And so that's just a fact. It's just you know, something that is. Um, but I often read these and get very discouraged, not about the data, but in our response to the data and how the people who are coming to conclusions about the data, they're not suggesting what it's clear from Scripture, which is to turn our hearts to God with full-hearted praise and worship. The problem is that we've gotten off the plot many, many decades ago, and we need to get back on the plot, which is to give God everything that we have and to be fully devoted to him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So there's several things I think we can know for sure. Okay, the early church did not have data-driven metrics. And if they did have data-driven metrics, it would have been far more bleak and depressing than our data-driven metrics because they occupied less than 1% of the total population of the Roman world at the time. But at the same exact time that they occupied less of 1% of the total population, their church was burning with a holy fire that only comes from this style of unceasing prayer, seeking God's face in prayer. And we also know that the love of Jesus is infectious, meaning that when you get the love of Jesus inside of you, it begins to spread. It just cannot help but spread. There's something different about the love of Jesus that when it's in you, it's noticeable. It's not just noticeable, it's also infectious. I also know that the manifest presence of God is powerful. It's powerful. And so therefore, when we devote ourselves to this style of prayer and we pattern our ministry after the life of Jesus, after the life of Paul, after the lifestyle of the early church, maybe we will be telling a different story than analyzing the decline of the church. So here's the statement I think that we can just aspire to as, as, a, as a family of believers. The words of Paul, I'm always praying for you. I'm always praying for you. Now, I know over the years, particularly I'm looking in the front row at a couple of people who've been listening to me rant and rave about this stuff for a couple of years now, 
And in all of my ranting and raving, I know I have shared with you many stories of revivals from church history. And like I've told you lots of different stories of the different revival prayer houses, but there's still many more I haven't told you about. I'm going to tell you about one more before we move on. There's this man by the name of Praying Payson of Portland. Okay, not Portland, Oregon, Portland, Maine. Now, he was a PhD in, uh, in theology from the Harvard uh, School of Divinity, but they didn't call him Dr. Payson. They called him Praying Payson. They called him Praying Payson because the Lord was moving mightily through his prayer life, not his great intellect. And so he's this man who was a pastor in the 1800s, Again, Portland, Maine, and he was known for stewarding like this praying community. And they were known for a couple of things, but one of the things that that church that he was leading was known for is what I would just call like rumblings of revival. It was a super vibrant place, and every now and again, everyone at church would just decide not to go home, but to just stay through the night and praise and worship and confess sin and devote themselves to the Lord again. Once in a while, there'd be a super like prophetic uh, powerful message or whatever, and there would be many people who like came to faith all at once, and it was a really powerful kind of rumblings of revival. And I was reading Payson's memoir uh, not too long ago, and and uh, and his memoir is the only memoir of a pastor that I'm aware of that includes details about his autopsy. There was actually like information about Payson's autopsy in his memoir written by one of his disciples. And uh, here's, here's what it said. It said uh, that the people who performed his autopsy were confused and very puzzled by the fact that his knees, praying patients' knees were calloused. And they wrote that they've never seen anything like this before and it was like he had the knees of a camel. Now his family and his church knew exactly what that was from. Uh, because he knelt and he prayed for the first few hours of his day. Also, it's reported that in his bedroom, right next to his bed, were divots, two divots in the floor, in the hardwood floor, where he would kneel and start every day. We later learn about his daughter, who became one of the great hymn writers of the 19th century. It wasn't a huge deal, maybe, to us, but in that time, certainly it was to write the hymnal of the church. Also, I believe that community that, Payson, uh, that Praying Payson led paved the way for something very significant I'm sure you've heard of, which is the Second Great Awakening. The Second Great Awakening broke out at the tail end of Praying Payson's life in the same region of the country. You may be familiar with the name Charles Finney and like another little praying band of people, and literally the entire evangelical movement, which you and I are now a part of, in other words, this is our spiritual lineage and roots, was deeply influenced by the Second Great Awakening, Charles Finney and the whole crew. And the reality is that it's, it's communities who pray forward awakenings that get to be a part of the history books in that exact same way. Um, and it's actually, again, my belief, which I'm going to explain here in a minute. It's my belief that um, it's very, uh, it makes a lot of sense why revivals come out of praying communities. Because we're living in contested space and there's enough people just raising up a cry and a shout of desperation for God to come and move with power. I'm going to explain that a little bit more, but that's the reality. So 
So zoom out, look at ourselves. What does your life have to do with praying patient of Portland, Maine from the 1800s, right? Well, most of us, for the most part, we come from a church culture. Maybe you're new to faith, but many of us have come from a church culture where it's normal to pray 10 minutes a week. Pastors or congregants alike, doesn't matter, 10 minutes per week. And that's not my opinion. That's based on the statistics that are available. It's like 10 minutes per week is about the average the American person, American Christian, rather, uh, prays. So these revivalist prayer warriors like Payson, like Ravenhill, like Nash, like Zinzendorf, all of these people I've been telling you about are actually making their marks in history by saying, hey, listen, what's normal in the church does not make sense. We're going to change what's normal. <laughs> we are going to not stop until the church's one thing is to seek the presence of God, enjoy the presence of God, practice the presence of God as a matter of first importance in life. This is the hill we die on. The hill we die on is seeking him with all of our hearts. See, G like Jesus wasn't playing when he said the greatest command was to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That was it. So see, this is, I think, Riverbend's place in the 2020s and 2030s church here in the Pacific Northwest. We want to change what's normal. And we're not, certainly not the only ones. There's many other churches who are a part of this movement that's called 24-7 Prayer. And so we're not the only ones. But we are very, uh, like, this is our heartbeat. This is what we're pressing into, is journeying deeper into the heart of Christ together. And it is my job to take as many of you who are willing to go along for this journey with us. So I'm simply just putting the challenge out there to you. Hopefully you hear this coming from just a loving, gentle challenge, like join me in the prayer room. Like I just showed you the website, just showed you the calendar, you got an email, so let's go. Let's go. You guys with me? I said that kind of tentatively, but I knew you guys were with me. It's gonna be, <laughs> some of y'all can be intimidating, just, the, just, just, just giving you a little bit of a, uh, like a clue into what it's like to stand up here and teach the scripture. Some of you like fold your arms very pensively and kind of like critical looks. It's like, it's whatever, it's fine, I can deal with it, but it's a lot sometimes. <laughs> and especially when I'm like, I know, poor, that dude's heard me say this like 40 times and he's probably like, he's saying it again. Okay, here we go. Um, but genuinely, it's coming from this place of like, we're not done. We still have a lot of room to grow and we're still gonna keep pressing into this. And there's always more to discover about God in prayer. So it's, this, is, this is where we're focused. Notice Paul also says, I always pray with joy. <laughs> I always pray with joy. Which, uh, listen, you've heard me geek out on prayer. I love it. But even I know that it's not every time that we pray where the clouds part and heaven descends, right? It's not like that every time. And yet Paul is somehow able to say, I always pray with joy. So how is that possible? You know, so how, how is that possible? And then um, how can we also join in with that same kind of joyous praise in prayer? Well, a couple things. The first thing is that your mind and your heart are contested spaces, meaning that uh, we devote ourselves to the Lord. We want to give ourselves to prayer. We want to connect with him. Certainly that's like at the very core of who we are. But then at the same time, we want other things. We desire other things. Our hearts 
are allegiant at times or desire other things as well. And so they are, our minds, our hearts are susceptible to being interrupted by distraction and also attacks from the enemy. And uh, long, for a long period of time now, uh, writers, authors, practitioners of the way have pointed this out. For example, um, Mother Theodora, who's one of the desert mothers from the sixth century, she writes this, you should realize that as soon as you intend to live in peace, that's her definition of prayer, living in peace, at once evil comes and weighs you down and your soul through a sense of boredom faint-heartedness, and evil thoughts. It also attacks your body through sickness, stability, weakening of the knees, and all the members. It dissipates the strengths of soul and body so that one believes one is ill and is no longer able to pray. But if we are vigilant, all of these temptations fall away. And so if you walked in here today and you feel like it's difficult for you to pray or you find yourself often uh, attacked or discouraged or disappointed or losing focus when you pray, Mother Theodora sees you <laughs> and I see you. Right? This is actually a pretty normal experience for people. As you press into prayer, there are all kinds of things that are going to try and distract you and get you off course. But her message, and this, is, this tracks with the Library of Scripture, her message is when we are vigilant and keep after it, then those temptations fall and we are led into joy. This is what uh, Henry Nowing calls the way of the heart, which is a way of learning to pray not just with our thoughts, but to allow our mind to descend even into our heart so that we are simply communing with God. And he says that at the end of that journey of just persisting, sometimes weeks, months, years, persisting and bearing our hearts before God and him bearing his heart to us, it leads to a life and a prayer life of joy. And that's what we are after together. So I'd encourage you to remain disciplined in the things that you have learned and taught, been taught here by, by us. So here's the end of Paul's passage and how we close today. He says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Essentially, Paul is simply celebrating that the Philippians are on track with him, following after his lead and partnering with him in the gospel, which is beautiful. They were giving gifts and they were advancing the gospel throughout the region of Philippi and beyond. It was awesome. So uh, in here is baked, baked into this verse is like a truth, a reality, that God wants to move and work mightily through your life. It's not just pastors or professional elite Christians or people who lead nonprofits or whatever. It's for each and every single one of us. God wants to activate you and he wants you to be a partner with him in the gospel. In fact, that's kind of the whole point of the Great Commission which is to go and to make disciples. You are just as much a part of that. You are equally involved in that as I am. We all have a role to play, you included. And so the scripture is simply saying here, Paul is affirming God wants to move mightily through you. It may be very different from my vocation in my life. You may be witnessing to Christ in some form or way in your workplace or in your family or in your sphere of influence. You might be pursuing avenues of justice and mercy or whatever. Whatever the case may be, God wants to use you. But notice the next phrase. He says this, I'm confident that um, 
He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So in order for God to work mightily through you, God wants to complete his work in you. So this is a simple observation, but uh, this is a reference to God wanting to deeply form your heart from within to retrain you, reform you into the image of Jesus. So in order for God to work powerfully through you, he wants to deeply form you. It's, like, it's just like, hey, we want to carry the love of Jesus to our world, but that cannot take place until the love of Jesus has been formed in us. And so we cannot give away what we do not possess. And so formation is an integral part of mission. They're not separated, they're one and the same. And Paul is saying, as I pray for you, this is what God is doing. He is deeply forming you. And he says, until the day of Christ Jesus, which is another thing that Paul talks a lot about. And it's simply a reference to the return of Christ, that Jesus is one day, hopefully very soon, coming back in glory in the language of Ephesians 1 to reunite all of heaven and earth under Christ. And that, my friends, is what our whole goal and aim is is to see the glorious return of King Jesus. And it's our role to simply be prepared for when that comes back. So Paul, when, when he comes back. So Paul is saying, listen, this is what we're about. This is what we're about. God forming you and moving powerfully through you. So how do we lean in? This is how we end. How do we lean in to the, uh, the work that God wants to form in us so that we can be mightily used for the kingdom of God? This is a lifelong exploration. I don't claim to give you all of the info here, but I wanna just simply explore this with you. How do we lean into what God wants to do in us so that he can mightily work through us? Here's a simple answer to that. I think it's by becoming a contemplative revivalist. This is a, a, a term I coined a couple weeks ago, and I wanna explain further what I mean by that. You know, we've been talking about forming a culture of prayer here at Riverbend for a long time. And every year as I begin to cast vision for prayer again, there's this part of me that just like reads all my favorite books again and a few more and then reviews all the, the scriptures that are all about, you know, the Lord and how we seek him in prayer. And then I listen to some other pastors who are also doing something similar in their churches and I'm like, sweet, awesome. And then I get ready to just, you know, knock a bunch of sermons out of the park is my hope. It's just like, bang, just like, preach awesome sermons to get you guys amped and pumped and inspired about joining us in the prayer room. And what I'm realizing is that that's a really good ambition and I'm gonna keep doing that. I can't really be stopped at this point. I'm geeked out. This is who I am. This is what you're gonna get. However, we don't need a prayer culture that is dependent on revved up inspirational sermons. Even the best sermons in the world, which I'm far from giving the best sermons in the world, but even the best sermons in the world will not sustain a prayer culture like the one we're talking about. What we need is a prayer culture instead that is built on intentional practices from the way of Jesus that we sustain for a lifetime. And so that's why I say we need to become a contemplative revivalist church. A contemplative is simply a follower of Jesus who practices things like silence and solitude, spiritual reading of scripture, various styles of prayer like inner healing and things like that. It's not hyped. Contemplative is just simply coming to God exactly how we are and it's learning to become present before God. We know that the power of the presence of God is here for us and it's, he wants to fill us, but we need to be present 
to him. And that's really one of the goals of becoming a contemplative. So we're leaning into rhythms and practices uh, from the contemplative tradition. And I think this is the primary way that we cooperate with God forming in us. So we're going to be used mightily. We've got to be formed. main way that we are formed is by cooperating with God by pursuing his presence through contemplative practices. A revivalist is a follower of Jesus who just wants to see God awaken his church. To be filled with power, to see the fame and glory of Jesus spread in our region, see people come to faith, and just simply a fire, <laughs> a revival in our time. And a revivalist is someone who is desiring to see God work through them but, it's, it, but it, it's anchored in this place of deep formation. So that's what we mean. So as we end here, I just want to give you virtues or you know, ways that we can press into becoming a contemplative revivalist. So I got seven virtues here, and they're all C's, which I never do. I never do alliteration. I never do that because I think it's lame. But I wanted, I wanted you to be able to remember, so I thought, hey, maybe that will help. So... <laughs> have you ever heard like if people do alliteration way too much I don't, just, just a comment on, on American preaching um, but here we go um, this is my one per year okay one per year one alliteration per year um, here's the first virtue Be, counter formation virtue of counter formation so into our very hurried stressed out distracted anxious culture we want to slow down and just become present to God. So again, that means we practice things like breath prayer and silence and Lectio Divina and inner healing and contemplative and imaginative and things like this. The prayer of examine in order to become present before God. So I recognize that for some we might be like, well, what does that even look like, feel like, sound like? I want to just open you up to the reading of Thomas Keating who wrote this incredible book, Open Mind, Open Heart, The Contemplative Dimension of the Gospel. And in it, he writes this. The presence, meaning the presence of God, is so immense, yet so humble. Awe-inspiring, yet so gentle. Limitless, yet so intimate. Tender and personal. I know that I am fully known. Everything in my life is transparent in this presence. It knows everything about me, all my weaknesses, brokenness, sinfulness, and still loves me infinitely. This presence is healing, strengthening, refreshing just by its presence. It's like coming home to a place I should have never left. Friends, I think this is just simply the secret of being reformed into the image of Jesus. It's not complicated. It is just being connected to the presence of Jesus through these slow down practices of seeking God's face. The second virtue is a virtue we'll call contending prayer. You've heard me talk about this a lot. So uh, we are living in a time of contested space, meaning the world we live in is, is contested space. There are competing wills at play in the world. Jesus said that he came so that you may have life and life to the full, Jesus wants to see all of Bend, all of your friends, co-workers, neighbors come to faith in Jesus. But the enemy has a different will, and that will is to steal, kill, and destroy. One very unconsidered passage of Scripture from 1 John um, is this. We know that we are children of God, and we know that the whole world 
is under the control of the evil one. That, that's the scripture in 1 John. And the reality is, is we, we don't often think like that, but the reality is that we are living in this contested space, competing wills at play. The enemy has set himself up against the advance of God's kingdom. And so we need to contend. And contending prayer is simply about claiming the realm of God's victory and kingdom, expanding in our hearts, in our lives, in our families, in this city, and in our churches. Um, and, and so we're praying uh, offensive, uh, offensive victory style prayers. So let me give you one of my favorite scriptures right now, which I realize that I always say that this is one of my favorite scriptures, but I can't help it. I love the scripture. So, um, so Jesus is being accused of, uh, of casting out demons uh, by the power of Satan. And in his response, he says, if it is the spirit of God that I'm driving out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And then he says this in verse 29 of Matthew chapter 12. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Now, in case you didn't catch it, in Jesus' own metaphor, he's the one who's the robber. Did you catch that? He's saying he is traveling into captured territory that the enemy has claimed and robbed from him in order to destroy and conspire against you. And Jesus has come, first bound up that strong man, and he is plundering Satan's stuff. That's what victory is like in the kingdom of God. So we are simply in contending prayer saying, yes, Lord, like we are yours. Your kingdom is victorious. You won on the cross. Your reign is peace. Now take back the ground that the enemy has taken. Bind him up. Take your rightful place as king of the city. Take your throne, Jesus. This is literally how we contend in prayer. And so we need to lean into this as a praying church. And this is why I say I think that many revivals, all revivals really, have been preceded by a praying community who knows how to contend. Because we are in a concentrated way coming together, crying out against the evil in our region. And we are, we are asking and pleading and crying out for God's victory to be made known and experienced. So I just want to give this to you as a uh, new prayer practice. When you pray, pray specifically in the name of Jesus and pray against the power of the enemy. And you say, Jesus, take your throne. You take your throne, Lord Jesus, in this place. And we join in with the songs and the cries of heaven. The next is uh, compassionate. This is the next virtue. The contemplative embodies the heart of God for the hurting. And the story of the scriptures tell us about a God who is disproportionately uh, bent towards the broken, the hurting, the marginalized, and the lost. Romans 12 teaches us to mourn with those who mourn, weep with those who weep. So as we pray, the Lord breaks our hearts for what's breaking his heart, and he sends us on mission to be merciful and kind and gracious and compassionate to the ones outside of the family who are in pain. So as you pray, you become compassionate. The next virtue is 
courageous, courageous. Okay, in a, in a time of widespread ethical compromise, we hold to the historic faith with joy, boldness, and holy confidence. I remember last year, I had a series of conversations with a Buddhist who showed up on my door. We had a bunch of conversations after that. And he was coming to me as like this new age spiritual guru trying to proselytize his faith. And I was like, oh, dude, you ended up at the wrong spot, man. <laughs> uh, but it, we had a bunch of fun conversations. And uh, at one point, he stopped me. And like four conversations in, he interrupted me. He stopped me. He's like, dude, look, with you, why is it always Jesus? It's always Jesus with you. And I looked at him and I said, exactly. It, it, with me, it's always him. It's always him. And the reality is that in a world that says, that's very pluralistic, that says, that, hey, choose your path, whichever way leads to God, there are no rules, it all is leading to the same place. We are living according to a completely different orthodox faith, which says, actually, we are in King Jesus' camp. We are rooted firmly here. He is king. And we follow after him. And so we need to hold that conviction courageously. Number five is communal, communal. So the contemplative tradition, very different to a lot of the later Western evangelical traditions, um, the contemplative tradition has not been handed down to us by individuals, like people who are very well-educated communicating information. The contemplative tradition has been given to us from a community of practitioners, does that make sense? Make, not, not, not a bunch of post-enlightenment scholars, but actually a group, a community of practitioners. The monastic movement, monastic orders, shared rules of life. These are all things that have been passed down to us from the desert mothers and fathers. And uh, this is how we learn to actually live out the way of Jesus is not just through information transfer. I've got a library full of theology books, and I want more of them. But if I want to actually know the heart of God, experience the heart of God, train and teach all of us to do that, it actually has much more to do with practice than it does to do with um, information transfer. And it doesn't happen individualistically. It happens in community, hands down. So in a culture that seeks to divide, polarize, and promote the cult of self, we are instead trying to build category-defying relationships through the way of the heart. As we all get closer to Jesus, we are getting closer to one another. If you were here last year during the prayer room, you knew one of our monikers that we would often say going and com go, uh, coming and going in the prayer room was keep the altar burning. Keep the altar burning. The idea is that as I'm leaving, I'm praying for you and asking you to hold that torch and keep seeking God for this next hour. So it's one of the aspects of the prayer room that you don't get if you just have a private life of prayer, which is also very important. We need to practice in community. Are you guys with me? Okay, two more. Number six, another C, charismatic. Um, this is another element of being a revivalist. We live by the power of the Holy Spirit. We embrace the ministry and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And there was a lot of things that could have been said about the early church. And again, I told you recently that there were under 1% of the total population in the 80s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. However, what began to happen is they caused an uproar in most cities that they had launched little churches. And the reason for that was because they had great spiritual power that could not be explained any other way then the Spirit of God was on them. And so there was a lot of, uh, you know, first century uh, folks, Jewish people mainly, and then later the folks who were part of the Roman Empire, who were just like trying to get rid of these Christian people because they were causing all kinds of problems um, for them. 
But they had to conclude, you know what? Surely God is among them. That's a line from uh, Acts chapter 13. Surely God is among them. So that so the, their power could not be denied. And that's what we want to lean into as well. Not that any of us would be known for our great spiritual power, but that the power of God would be manifest in our community. Amen? Yeah. Okay, last one. The last virtue of the contemplative revivalist is to be contextualized. And that's a very simple idea that I made kind of complicated because I wanted to use a C. And the word simply means this. We thoughtfully engage our culture. We thoughtfully engage our culture. So on the one hand, on the contemplative side, in an anxious world, we practice breath prayer. In a depressed and anxious world, we practice gratitude. In a hurried and distracted world, we practice stillness and silence. And these practices are literally healing They make us into a healed, non-anxious community in the midst of a toxically anxious world. And then on the revivalist end of that, into a very dark and evil world, we practice things like spiritual warfare prayer. In an idolatrous world, we practice wholehearted, undivided devotion to Jesus. In an apathetic culture, we pray with desperation and with hunger for him to renew our strength and to move with power in our time. This is the prayer of the holy discontent, if you're familiar with the readings and the writings of Mark Sayers. The holy discontent confront the idols of our time, and we do that by praying them down in the prayer room. And again, I call and challenge you to just simply join us for the journey. All of these convictions, all of these seven convictions, we, we press into in the 24-7 prayer room these, over these next 40 days. And this is who we end up becoming as we press into them. Because as we press into the prayer room, we're really pressing into relationship with Jesus. And by the way, this is who he actually is. This is what he is actually like. And I was talking about this with another pastor friend of mine who happens to be like a uh, leader of the 24-7 prayer movement. And uh, we were laughing and smiling at all that God has done through the prayer room. And what was really interesting was we, 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 we kind of came to the conclusion that all of the really wild and crazy stories from the prayer room seemed to come from the really late night shifts, like 1 a.m., 2 a.m., 3 a.m. And so we were, we were just reminiscing about that and sh- swapping stories, and it was really, really interesting. We were like, why is that? Why is it the case that the, the, the real crazy stories of God delivering people God helping people, God speaking to people. Why is it that they come late at night? And we came to this conclusion, I think it could be supported biblically, which is devotion expressed through sacrifice is rewarded by God. Devotion expressed through sacrifice is rewarded by God. Now think about the widow who gave her last mite in the offering. And God said, Jesus looked at her and said that she was going to be greatly rewarded because she gave everything that she had. And there is simply something about giving of your time and your energy when it's a sacrifice that God tends to reward. Jonah, in the belly of the whale, uh, he was like having an existential crisis while he was being slowly dissolved by the stomach acids of a whale. And, uh, and he has this come to Jesus moment, literally. He's be- repenting to God. And he says, I, I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. And then this is the line. 
What I have vowed, I will make good. What I have vowed, I will make good. And that is the beginning of the good part of Jonah's story. So how do we end a teaching like this? Um, I, I think about this all the time because I love delivering concepts. I love talking about the seven C's of, you know, a contemplative revivalist. But more than anything, I hope you're hearing is that we want this to become uh, something that we all embody. That we're not just really good at talking about, you know, different aspects of prayer, but that we are actually practitioners. And so we want to lean in today by simply praying together, opening up a little bit of extra time here to just pray some of these things in. So I just want to model for you and guide you through a short prayer practice that hopefully will connect you to some of these concepts that we've been talking about. Are you guys good with that? Does that sound good? Okay, would you please stand with me and let's move into a rhythm of prayer. Now, um, I know that for some of you who may be new to us, this idea might be freaking you out a little bit, which is totally fine. Um, Please don't feel strong-armed or forced into anything that you're not really comfortable with. Enter in at whatever level that you are comfortable with. That being said, I just want to encourage you to just say, yes, God, whatever you have for me right now, I want it. So let's open our hands and just begin with the first rhythm of prayer which we will just call breath prayer. Breathe in, breathe out. Breathe in, breathe out. And this rhythm is simply just about opening our hearts to God. Psalm 27 says, my heart has heard you say, come away and talk with me. And my heart responds, Lord, I am coming. So as you focus on your breathing in and breathing out, notice the nearness of God's presence. Notice how close he is to each and every one of us. And for you, this may be like coming back to center and being like, oh yeah, God is right here with me. And now I just want you to hear that whisper of invitation from the Spirit. Come away and be with me. And then in your own way, with your heart, say, Lord, I am coming. Now I just want to invite you to ask a question of the Lord and just say, God, what is it that you want to make me aware of today? What do you want to make me aware of? notice what you are sensing, what you're hearing, what you're seeing, what you're feeling. Some of you may be confused or 
distracted. Notice that too. Don't criticize yourself. Just notice that that's what you're feeling and that's okay. And then choose to put aside distraction and instead just lean in and say, God, I want more. In rhythm number two, I just simply want us to praise the Lord. Tell God what you love about him. You love hearing from others what they love about you. You tell God what you love about him. Scriptures tell us to enter his courts with thanksgiving and praise. Psalm 30 says, You turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy, that my heart may sing your praises and not be silent. Lord my God, I will praise you forever. as you praise the Lord you may very well be brought to the many things in your life that you wish were very different you may be brought back to all of your distractions maybe some shame and some guilt mixed in there's all kinds of things that can flood our minds and attention during times of prayer like this I want you to notice all of those things as legitimate emotions and experiences but then make a conscious choice to thank God in spite of all of those things that you might be experiencing. It's our way of saying, yes, life is far from perfect, but I am thankful because God has been good to me. So in this next rhythm, I just want to encourage you to ask. The scripture says that we, when we ask, we receive. You're asking for God to help you, for God, for God to help someone else in your life. Paul, again in Ephesians, it's not going to come as a surprise to you. He says this, pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and all kinds of requests. Always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. That's Ephesians 6, 18. So bring your request to God. I just want to encourage you to approach the Lord himself or some of us is very helpful um, to see ourselves in the images and metaphors of scripture if he, uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 4 says that we can approach God's throne of grace with confidence for mercy and grace for help in time of need and so I just encourage you to picture in your mind's eye you approaching God's throne room. Pay attention to what you see 
and what you hear and what you feel. Just know the temptation here is to be tentative and to think maybe this isn't really for me and that's okay if that's how you're feeling right now. But I just wanna remind you what Jesus said, you don't take my word for it, what the word of God himself says. You can approach boldly. You belong here, this is home. So pay attention to what the Lord is saying to you, showing you. invite you Holy Spirit to come would you break in would you break through would you get a hold of us would you say what it is you want to say to your church we are listening next rhythm is to simply listen listen for the voice of God It's possible the Lord may simply be giving you a picture or a vision, prophetic word, or some kind of scripture is coming to your mind. And whatever it is um, that's coming to your mind, and if you're curious what that might represent or what that might be for, I just encourage you to go visit our friends, some of our staff team in the back at the Praying Hands. They would love to help you discern what God's voice might be trying to say to you. So you can go ahead at any point during this gathering and just go back there and get some help discerning. And for others of you who this isn't actually all that helpful of a rhythm and you're not really picturing or seeing or hearing anything, notice that's okay too. It's just simply to be with God is the goal. And now finally, our last rhythm here is to just simply answer his love. He has loved you through Jesus. We are connected to him in his presence. So answer his love with loving him back. Say, I love you too. I love you too. I love you too. Just getting the sense that there's someone here who needs to be healed. And I was asking the Lord about it, and I don't think it's a physical wound. I think it's an emotional wound that needs to be healed. And if I'm speaking to you, I just encourage you to go to the back of the room and receive prayer from Brittany and Sam. They'd love to pray over you. And as we close here, I just want to notice in our bodies in our hearts and in our minds. What has shifted? What has changed in the last 10 minutes? As we've been pressing into the presence of God, what has he shown you? What has changed in you?
If you're trying to find a name for it, I think the name you're looking for is peace. God is sending his peace. He's filling you with his peace. So I just wanna close this time carefully because we're gonna actually continue on in worship. So I don't want to transport you out of this moment of prayer. I actually want us to stay right here and Christina will lead us. But I also just want to celebrate what God is saying and speaking. And I just pray, Lord Jesus, that you would come with great power, that you would move by your Holy Spirit, that you would form us deeply, that you may be able to use us greatly. And we love you, Lord. Connect us, keep us connected, God, to your presence. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So the team's going to lead us. And I just encourage you, come grab the bread and cup. Go back to your seat, and we'll take it together here in a moment.